Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Let's Run, the Western Mass Running Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Gaudet. This podcast is made possible thanks to the resources at East Hampton Media. My featured guest on today's podcast is Ben Kimball. Anyone who has visited the Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club's website has likely perused an issue of the Sugarloaf Sun newsletter and enjoyed the work of Ben Kimball, who is the newsletter co-editor. The newsletter is published bi-monthly and includes running tips, member profiles, and summaries of local road races, and often includes some of Ben's awesome photography. The theme of the latest issue is safety. It is 30 pages and contains a number of interesting articles by local runners, many of them women who have shared their experiences of dealing with threats while running alone. I recommend the Sugarloaf Sun for everyone. If you are a trail runner or simply enjoy hiking in the woods, then you'll enjoy Ben Kimball's books on trail running in Massachusetts. In 2015, his book titled Trail Running, Western Massachusetts was released and contains profiles of 51 trails that are ideal for either running or hiking. This past March, Ben's companion guide, Trail Running Eastern Massachusetts, was released. As Laura Vandenbrick Rafsenberger wrote in the Sun Newsletter, Quote, this book is not a guide, but a labor of love, enthusiastically inviting us to finally visit the popular spots as well as explore some hidden gems that we've never heard of. Sales of Ben's new book are off to a good start, and the publisher is asking for more. Stay tuned. In this podcast, we discuss Ben's books and the Sun newsletter, as well as his photography, running, and other outdoor activities. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Ben's love of the outdoor really shines through. Here's my conversation with Ben Kimball, and stay tuned afterwards for a rundown of local running events, including some history on the Big Fourth 5K that will take place on the 4th of July at the Basketball Hall of Fame. I would like to now introduce Ben Kimball to the Let's Run podcast. Ben lives in Greenfield, and is a runner, hiker, cross-country skier, professional photographer, GIS expert, and writer. His most recent book that was just published in March is titled Trail Running Eastern Massachusetts, which is a companion to his 2015 book, Trail Running Western Massachusetts. Ben has photographed numerous races and outdoor events, primarily in Western Mass. Ben is the main engine behind the popular Sugarloaf Sun newsletter, and has completed numerous road races, trail races, and triathlons, including marathons and ultras. So, Ben, welcome to the Let's Run Western Mass Running Podcast. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Great. You know, Ben, I discovered the Sugarloaf Sun newsletter last year when I was preparing for a podcast conversation with Tom Raffensperger. Yeah. And since I discovered that, I've admired your work on the sun. As far as your photography is concerned, I... I actually ran by you once. I don't remember doing it, but when you were snapping photos. <laughs> oh, yeah. Doing at least one road race. So it's good to finally meet you, if only on Zoom. Yeah, likewise. I often don't recognize people as they run past me when I'm taking photos. It's only later that I'm like, oh, there's uh, so-and-so. Yeah. Well, there's so many. I mean, there's hundreds of people, but we'll talk yeah. about your race photography in a few minutes. But you certainly have a lot of talents. You're a real renaissance man. So we have a lot to talk about. So I'd like to talk about your writing first. You're Appear to certainly have a love of writing and 
many different articles from your Northeast Adventures blog to your work on the Sun newsletter to your books. So when did you start writing about the outdoors and running? Well, I started writing the blog back around 2008 or so when I was living in New Hampshire and beginning to blend my hiking and running and photography. And I've been doing a lot of like fun adventures up in the White Mountains and stuff for over a decade at that point. Things like Pemi Loops and backcountry ski treks and uh, obscure landslide scar bushwhacks and stuff and uh, <laughs> lots of winter ascents in the snow. And, and, and I guess my creative side was craving a little more airtime. So, you know, that's back when I had a flip phone though. So <laughs> when I took pictures on trail runs, I was literally hauling around heavy cameras and lenses in a backpack the whole time. So I'd like to think that made me stronger, but it probably just caused me injuries. You still bring your camera with you though, right? Or do you use a cell phone for some of your photos? It depends. For race photos, I definitely bring the big equipment out, but for my own stuff, I generally just go with an iPhone at this point if I'm not trying to take professional quality photos. Well, yeah, well, the technology's improved so much over the years. Yeah, but I guess if I have any intention of putting it in a magazine or something like that, then I'll, yeah, I'll change it up. But right. for the blog and stuff like that, iPhones, are they're fine these days. Oh, yeah, for a computer, you don't really need that much resolution, actually. So based on an Amazon search, you've written four books. So I'd like to first talk about your most recent books on trail running, and then we can discuss your earlier writing. So in 2015, you wrote a book, titled Trail Running Western Massachusetts. And even though the title says trail running, would this be a good reference for those who just like to hike? I know myself, I enjoy running and I enjoy the trails, but I don't necessarily enjoy combining the two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm actually really glad you asked that. The niche that I targeted was trail runners for sure, or just runners in general. But the truth is each site is great for hiking too. And in most cases, trail runners are hiking the uphills anyway, or at least the steep ones. Right. So was there any specific event that motivated you to write this book? Yep. (laughs) Um, I uh, found myself underemployed at the time, so to speak, and uh, was looking for ways to bootstrap myself back up using the skills and passions I had in my toolbox. And I do always say, do what you love. And I do love running and writing and maps and photography. So, uh, It just seemed like a natural blending of things. Well, that's great. Hey, they say if you do what you love, you've never worked a day in your life, right? (laughs) Right. I'm not sure about the earnings aspect of it. But But the book features 51 trails. And I know you're probably familiar with the 50 hikes books. So did you pick 51 just to have one more than 50? Maybe to outdo them a little bit? (laughs) To be honest, that part was the publisher's idea. And I just kind of rolled with it. I think it was something along the lines of, Eight-minute abs? I can beat that. Listen to this. Seven-minute abs. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So I read where you stated that it was a challenge to limit your book to 51 sites. So how did you ultimately decide which sites to include in the book? I came down to a couple of competing factors, you know, including overall geographic spread, type of trail site, accessibility, things like that. I wanted to make sure that the whole region was fairly represented, but I also needed to make sure that there was parking, permission, and sufficient mileage at each site. So I tried to not include any suggested routes under three miles, part of what just distinguishes these books from standard hiking guides. Runners generally don't want to waste time traveling to a site for a one or two mile trail run, whereas hikers will do that all the time. Sure. So in your book, you're very mindful of conserving the trails and Never really thought of this. My wife and I hike a lot, but you mentioned 
going out in the trails in the springtime when the ground is still wet can enhance erosion. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah, nobody really wants to hear this. And I'm truly sorry to be the big wet blanket. But the truth is that there's a lot of days in March and April when we really probably shouldn't be out running on the trails in the numbers that we are. When I was in college in Vermont, the uh, Green Mountain Club used to officially close all of the trails from snowmelt until Memorial Day to protect them from erosion. And I admit it was super frustrating because I really wanted to get out hiking, but they had a point. And it's especially true for older trails that shoot straight up and down slopes where erosion is, it's just going to happen when those soils are wet and sloppy in the spring. It's, it's not great. So, and you know, I, I would also advocate for if you must, if you are going to get out and do stuff like that, just really give back and commit to doing some trail maintenance, trying to encourage that as much as possible. Our favorite time to hike is in the fall. Around here, you get the foliage and the weather's nice. And, and yeah, the tra- trails are wet generally in the spring and not as pleasant hiking. Your book also identifies some of the hazards of trail running. Of course, naturally, there's a risk of falling associated with rocks and tree stumps and wet leaves. So you also mentioned in your book, the need for good hydration and planning and protection against insects. And so any specific recommendations to avoid some of these hazards or minimize the impact? Yeah. For hydration, I pretty much always carry a handheld water bottle for any run that's in the four to six mile range. And that's usually enough for me at that point, or I can camel it for anything below that. And then a hydration backpack for longer ones. There's tons of good brands out there. I think I'm using an Osprey at the moment. As for insects, I admit, I I rarely use bug spray. I hate the feel and smell of it. Yeah, me too. So I just suck it up for mosquitoes and black flies for the most part. You give them a little meal, I guess. Black fly season is June. I generally avoid going up to New Hampshire in June because of black flies. I think that's right. Yeah. And mosquito season, I'm not even sure there is one really. I think it's more just a matter of if it rained recently, there's going to be mosquitoes. Yeah. feels like mosquitoes are always in season. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Whereas black flies are definitely worse basically for the next month or so. My two exceptions are ticks and deer flies. I'm a big fan of a product called Green Mountain Tick Repellent out of Vermont. That works surprisingly well for keeping ticks at bay when I remembered it to use it. Does that work on dogs? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. We take our dog out for a walk uh, almost every day and, and we come back home to, and th- thank goodness she's white. She's a golden doodle. And yesterday we picked off 10 ticks. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, oh, that's too many. <laughs> it's way too many. Yeah. I mean, she likes to go in the brush. We're on, just on the side of the road. And yeah. so then the ticks seem to be more prevalent the last couple of years. I have a question for you. Do dogs pick up poison ivy? Can they bring poison ivy back to you? <laughs> like if they get it on their I fur? don't know. I, I've never heard of that. So <laughs> okay. I'm just really allergic to poison ivy. And I oh. always wondered about that. I don't think so, but I'm not the expert on that. <laughs> yeah. The other bug that I just cannot deal with is deer flies. And they are just murder in the month of July. Almost the entire month of July is terrible. So I've taken to using those deer fly patches those buggers are just the worst. <laughs> yeah. What about large animals, bears, moose? Have you ever had any encounters? Yeah, I actually see them pretty frequently, actually, surprisingly. I'm never usually too surprised when I see a moose or a bear. Usually I see them when I'm alone, but sometimes even in groups. I just do my best to be respectful and keep my distance. More often than not, they're just doing their thing. And I've seen a lot of bear butt running away from me over the years. Yeah, I've seen a few bears, but you know, we never see any moose. 
I've seen them all over the place. I've seen them on the sides of mountains. One time I saw one pretty high up on Katahdin in Maine. Oh, wow. wow. So Katahdin, did you hike the knife edge? Yeah, it was actually coming down from the knife edge. What, what right? Yeah, maybe like half a mile or so after we'd gotten back into treeline. Many years ago, I went up to uh, Katahdin, but did not hike the knife edge, though. It's, it's a good one. Right. So let's now talk about the organization of the book itself. Every trail running route in the book has a chapter dedicated to it. And you provide a site profile, route description, you know, maps, and a QR code that links the reader to enhanced digital maps and color photos. And so then you could either save these maps on your phone or print them out and carry them with you. Um, you're a cartographer and a GIS expert. So how did you create these maps? Particularly for the first book, there was a real lack of good publicly accessible data to work with. So I just collected most of it myself. For any given site, there's the suggested route and all the adjacent trails that it intersects with. So in really dense places like the Holyoke Range and Pittsfield State Forest, there's a lot of other trails in the networks. So it took a lot of time and effort. And that's where uh, my partner, Jen, helped out too. Anyway, yeah, so I did all the maps myself using a combination of GIS software for the heavy data lifting and Adobe Illustrator for the finer cartographic work. And then I got most of the base layer data, like contour line and stuff like that at MassGIS. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of fine tuning whenever there were problems with the data and stuff. It was pretty labor intensive overall. Wow. So you also identified the difficulty rating of the trail, whether it's challenging, moderate, or easy. So how do you make that assessment? Yeah, it's an inherently subjective category for sure. And mostly I'm hoping people will just sort of trust my experience there. Um, I'm a middle of the pack runner and I've been doing it for decades. So I think I have a pretty good sense of it. If you're on the podium for, say, the Seven Sisters trail race, then you may find some of my challenging ratings laughably easy. <laughs> and at the same time, beginner trail runners may find some of the, the easy ones surprisingly hard. But I think for most people, they're pretty reasonable. So my wife and I, we recently hiked along the, uh, the Seven Sisters trail. And, you know, in a few locations, we had to think about which way the trail went. You know, and, and of course, there's white blazes that mark that trail. And there's a couple of signs along the way. But it felt to me like they could have used a few more white blazes. I don't know. Is, it, is that me or is it? No, I've noticed that it really comes and goes. Probably the best thing to do is in a case of the NET or uh, M&M trail is now the NET. I think you can actually just write to the organization and let them know about places that are a little bit sketchy. I would say in general, they do a pretty good job. And I've noticed that it really comes and goes. So when writing about the sites, I, I try to be mindful of the fact that it might have been like 10 years or more since the trail was last blazed when I researched it, but then it might get redone the following year. So I don't want to have written that it was, <laughs> it was yeah, no right. good. So most of the time, I feel like the marking is fairly well done, though. No, we didn't go down any detours or anything, but we did stop and think for a minute. We'll see, is it this way? It looked like another path. And maybe the two paths joined downstream, but... <laughs> Yeah, for sure. There's always a stretch or two where a trail could use more markers or, or even times where there's like double the number that there needs to be. Right. The gold standard I feel for trail marking is the Appalachian Mountain Club, like up in New Hampshire and White Mountains and those trails. Yeah. I've never really had an issue there. Yeah, it's tough to complain unless you're on one of the really obscure trails that hasn't been seen in a while or something. Yeah. If you're above the tree line, it can be hard to find the cairns, especially if it's a cloudy day. Right. But anyway, 
What would you say distinguishes your books from other trail guides? One thing that I noticed was the QR code. I had never seen that before in a book. And I, I don't know if that's standard now or in, because all my books are old. You know, I, I still got my AMC White Mountain Guide from 30 years ago. I still have mine too, Tim. Yeah, the, the one that I recorded all my 4,000 footers in back in the day. There's <laughs> <laughs> the little check marks in the back. Yeah. So besides the scannable map codes, which I, don't, I haven't really seen that done elsewhere. It was, it was sort of just a, a means to distinguish mine. I, I think aside from that, one thing that makes my books unique is that they're specifically written with runners in mind, especially in terms of total distances of the suggested routes and also that also subjective aspect of runnability. Yeah. Some slopes are just too steep or scree slopey to recommend. There's a section of the NET on the south side of Mount Tom that comes to mind. I mean, people run it. I run it, but I would never really recommend it. It's super steep and loose scree and everything. So Right. So you're also an accomplished photographer. And so I presume that you took all the photos that appear in your books? I did. Yep. And uh, both covers. And it's certainly nice to not have to secure photo rights. Right. So just recently, you published your second trail running book, Trail Running in Eastern Massachusetts. Now, now you're a Western Mass guy. So tell me the truth. Do you favor the Western Mass trails over the Eastern Mass? Or maybe you can't say. <laughs> I can't really say that I do. I admit that was probably my bias going in, but it turns out it's just not the case. I genuinely loved so many of the sites that I went to in Eastern Mass, including Lynn Woods, by the way, which is very near where you're from. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm from Saugus and Lynn Woods. That's 10 miles north of Boston, uh, where I grew up. It was awesome. I really loved it there. It's got all different types of trail types, beginners, intermediates, Experienced people would have a blast there. there. There's this one super hard technical trail there called the Wicked Hard Trail. <laughs> and, and you only really find it on like mountain bike mapping sites. If you're up for it, it's just stupidly fun to run. It roller coasters oh, wow. all around this rocky hillside. And I literally found myself just like laughing out loud as I pinballed around on it. <laughs> so when you visited all these trails, did you actually run them or did, did you hike them or... It was a mix. Sometimes yeah, I would enjoy a section enough to go back and just run it over again, just, just to get the pleasure of running it. But most of the time I was jogging up to a plate and then I would find something that looked good in a photo and I'd stop and take a photo. I took a lot of voice notes on my phone about what I needed to say in the suggested route description. So mm -hmm. it was a pretty staggered start-stop approach to data collecting with some more fluid running mixed in. Right. So the organization of the Eastern Mass book is very similar to the Western Mass book that you published seven years ago. So did you learn anything from the first book that helped you with this Eastern Mass book? Mm, so much. I knew the precise structure of each profile that it needed to follow. So I, I knew what my exact word count limit would be. And I always had more to say than I had room for. Uh, and I needed to trim a lot of the looser, more conversational language at the end. And maybe most importantly, I knew what each map would look like and what I would need to include on it, what data I'd need to collect. And all of that really helped with logistics and planning. And I did personally explore every step of each suggested route. Yeah, that must have been very time consuming, right? Super time consuming. And I only had seven months to do it all. And were you under a deadline from the publisher? Yeah, it was part of a contract that I signed with them to have the manuscript in by a certain time. And it just, by coincidence, that time window included the entire winter. So four or five of those months were snowbound. Oh, yeah, that must have been a real challenge. 
For sure. And efficient planning was uh, essential on this one. Right. Did you ever think about self-publishing? I know Kindle has publishing tools and I don't know, maybe you don't get the same quality, same exposure. I think both of those last two things probably don't get the same quality. The people at UMass Press who did the new book were fantastic, as were the people that did the older one. I was really lucky to work with really excellent teams. Plus, when you were working on this, you had the pandemic to deal with as well. How did that affect you? Oh, man. It had a huge impact. I, I wore a mask or a buff for more of warm weather runs, especially early on, you know, than I could stand. And I, I tend to run hot and with a high heart rate to start with. So adding the mask didn't do me any favors. No, no. Um, and also, you know, COVID was a real concern while traveling to sites far away from where I live, like out on Cape Cod. I was in the Hyannis vicinity, right near the peak of their case counts. And it, it felt like I was always being a bit irresponsible whenever I went out just to go get dinner. Oh, yeah, right. You're traveling 100 miles just to go hike a trail and then, and then the restaurants are closed. Yeah, it was a weird time for sure. At the same time, you know, if I needed to find a hotel room or something to stay in, it wasn't hard. <laughs> <laughs> they were open. Yeah, right. But I guess it probably gave you um, a little bit more time to work on it because you didn't have as many races to photograph, right? I mean, the, the race count was down. And so your work photographing races, was that diminished at all? Or It was super diminished. I maybe shot one race in 2020, a couple in 2021, you know, pretty much later in the, in the year. But yeah, all that stuff was shut down. The timing wise, doing the new book worked out extremely well in terms of my schedule, mm -hmm. especially my work schedule. So do you have other books in mind? Yep. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's probably a little early to, to talk about it, but people who uh, follow me on Strava will probably start noticing me heading north a bit more than, than normal. Vermont or New Hampshire. <laughs> so that's awesome. We'll be looking forward to that. So... Of all the trails that you profiled, do you have a favorite? Like if I told you, okay, you know, you can only do one more trail, where would you go? Oh, um, that would be uh, a tough rule for the explorer in me to follow. <laughs> They'll only visit one yeah. more. Uh, I'm definitely more of a country mouse than a city mouse. Um, so I was so surprised to discover that one of my absolute favorite sites was actually inside 495. Oh, wow. And that was the Ward Reservation. I would choose the Ward Reservation in Andover, Mass, in wow. a heartbeat. There's so much good running there. I, I had such a good time. But of course, also, I'd still be wishing I could go run at Mount Tom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, an amazing right. local treasure. So before we move on, is, is there anything else that you'd like to mention about your trail running books? Uh, just that I hope people find them useful and maybe inspiring. Oh, and that, you know, each of the detailed sites... The profiles includes a nearby section at the end that lists all sorts of other great trail running options, especially in the, the new volume. I was able to expand those a little bit. And, and so many of those sites are worth checking out. There's, there's so, so many more than just 51. So let's talk briefly about your first two books. In 2006, you published a book titled 300 Miles, which is about the first 300 miles of the Appalachian Trail, starting in Springer Mountain in Georgia. When you were hiking the trail, you were not planning on writing a book. So what made you eventually decide to write a book about the Appalachian Trail? I couldn't stop myself from writing it. I, I kept a journal and just enjoyed transcribing the entries and fleshing them out. I should probably note, though, that I, that book I did self-publish back in 2006. And, and I only made like 60 copies or so uh, that I gave out to friends. And 
the fact that it's available on Amazon means that somebody hopped their copy. <laughs> <laughs> so the intro states that it's a guidebook laced with a little humor and some colorful stories. Um, so it reminded me of Bill Bryson's book, A Walk in the Woods, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, yeah, you, for sure. That was hilarious. Did Bill inspire you to uh, inject some humor into your writing or, may or maybe that just comes naturally? I think it comes naturally. I actually wrote mine before Bryson did. or at least, Oh, you did? Oh, Yeah, at least I, I did the hike and, and, and wrote the initial entries first. That, that, that was actually about a 1995 hike. Okay. Um, I, right. I did like Bryson's right, So style. he copied you then. <laughs> yeah, right. If, if he was able to get one of the 60 copies. <laughs> his stuff was great. I liked his style. And, you know, to this day, I'll, I'll laugh at some of the little Debbie uh, yeah, jokes right. that, are, that are in it and everything. But I wouldn't right. say it was a specific inspiration. I know it was a while ago, but do any of the colorful stories from that book stand out? I probably can't share the, the funniest ones. They're not necessarily family friendly, but there was one involving civil obedience. A fellow hiker friend protested a grossly misleading Forest Service sign at the top of a remote mountaintop in Western North Carolina. And the, the sign basically was extolling the benefits of clear cutting on the health of the watershed's soil and ecosystem. And we all just knew that it was just a load of BS. It was so yeah, not right. true. So he protested by cutting the sign down and throwing it over the edge um, of the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> and later he got tracked down and arrested for it right in yeah. front of us. And so have you ever hiked the entire Appalachian Trail? I have not. That was all about the first 300 miles. I was with a friend who was starting out on his through hike. Okay, cool. So your other book that was published in 2011 is a collaboration with Dan Spaduto called The Nature of New Hampshire, Natural Communities of the Granite State. So what are natural communities? It's probably too long of a topic to get into today, but in a previous professional life, I worked for the Rare and Endangered Species Program in New Hampshire. And the natural communities are they're basically the native habitat types of plants and animals. I was a GIS specialist with an ecology background, so it all fit together. So what's the best way to, for someone to check out your books or purchase them? Always the best option is to check out your local bookseller to see if they have a copy or can order it for you. Often they're already in stock, but it's usually easy enough to, to order if our local bookstores are awesome. That said, Amazon always has it too, of course, and Barnes & Noble. So you maintain a blog titled Northeast Adventures. And anyone can find this by Googling you know, Northeast Adventures blog Ben Kimball. And I found it to be interesting and, and well-organized. You describe your blog as occasional ramblings on running, racing, triathlons, hiking, and mountains, mountains, photography, and life. And so you have blog posts as far back as 2008. So what motivated you to start your blog? It's really just kind of a catch-all for me. At this point, it can be a bit redundant with some other social media, but I still like to use it for topics that benefit from more than just an attention-grabbing caption. It really lets me literally ramble a bit with my writing in a way that you don't always get to when you're limited by a word or character count. Sure. And also past posts are a lot more accessible. Like your 2009 Facebook post is still back there, but I promise you, no one is going to go take half a day to scroll all the way back yeah. to look at it. <laughs> right. So the blog has links to your photography, which is awesome, and other favorite blogs, and, and even your favorite songs. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get a little rambly. <laughs> so Ben, you live in Greenfield and are a member of the Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club with SMAC. I've had a few SMAC members on the Let's Run podcast, including Tom Raffensperger, Don and Sue Grant. Grant Ritter, Erica Emerson, and, and Sarah Bousquet. 
old episodes live on for an eternity on the internet, so folks can go back and listen. But anyway, Smack publishes an awesome newsletter every month called the Sugarloaf Sun, and you resurrected the Sun newsletter back in 2015 after a two-year hiatus. So how did you decide to get involved with the Sun? Well, basically, they asked. My friend Patrick Pizzotti was on the board and knew about the first book and my blog and thought I'd be a good fit. And, and he was right. I really enjoyed it. Longtime smack newsletter writers and editors like John Stifler and Ben Benson were super helpful with getting me started on it and have continued to provide awesome content ever since. And by the way, Tim, I just want to say, I, I went back and listened to some of those older podcast episodes as well, and definitely worth a listen. I give a, a strong plug for that. <laughs> oh, appreciate that. <laughs> Especially yeah. I was listening to some of the, you know, the, the Smack members in particular, just like, oh, out of curiosity, like, oh, what do they have to say? And uh, yeah, good stuff. Love it. No, appreciate that. So I enjoyed the newsletter. That 2015 Sun newsletter, the first one back was from, by Patrick Pizzotti, and it was about the Chicago Marathon, which I have a keen interest in because I'm um, running it in October. Oh, cool. I'm trying to soak up as much info as I can before I go out there. But yeah, nothing beats a good informative race report. Yeah, you know, it's, newsletter really is great. You know, I belong to Empire One Running Club, and it'd be great to have something like that for our club, but I just don't have the time or the talent for it. It's a lot of work to do. And Oh, it is, but you might be surprised. I'll, I'll bet Empire One would come through for you. The uh, the Smack newsletter comes out every two months, which admittedly sometimes feels like too tight of a deadline, but I swear each issue somehow ends up feeling like a mini magazine focused on the local running community. And, and I'm really proud of it, actually. And, and the reason that uh, I think it's so good is that Smack has a really deep bench of it's not a huge club, but it has a really deep bench of runners who are also talented writers and artists, and they're super productive and willing to share. So again, I bet you could do it. And the yeah. main thing is just spend some time reaching out to the members and fishing for contributions that they'd be interested in sharing. Yeah. There's that aspect of it. And then there's just the technical aspect of putting it together, the photographs. I love how yours is organized. And each one in the left column, you have index, and each one is about 20, 25 pages, I think, right? Yeah, it was never the intent to have it be that long. It's an embarrassment of riches. Like I said, we just keep ending up with a lot of really great submissions by the members. And so this newsletter can be accessed via the SMAC website. Yep. And you have a nice archive. You have issues as far back as 2004. And of course, it's chock full of uh, your brilliant photography as well. And that's what makes it special. Again, like I was saying before, it's nice to not have to secure photo permissions. <laughs> I can always <laughs> right. flesh something out with a photo from my archives. So this is a good segue now to talk about your photography. And if you Google Ben Kimball photography, you find a link called northeastracephotos.smugmug.com, which contains a beautiful gallery of your race photos. And so when you go to that homepage, there's a beautiful photo of runners. It's a nighttime race and they all have their headlamps on and it's in the winter and and they're all looking at their garments ready to start. <laughs> and so what event is that from? It's, it's an awesome photo. I'm so glad you liked that shot. It was one of those lightning in a bottle pictures. At the start of a February nighttime snowshoe race out at Douglas State Forest. Wow. Uh, I don't think it's actually held anymore, but I love that shot. I feel like it captures the zany spirit of the nutty shoestring budget backyard races that <laughs> you know aren't afraid to start in the middle of the night or require full-on river crossings or whatever. <laughs> Those are often my favorites. So you have photo galleries of races all the way back to 2012. And I actually found a photo of myself on your page. <laughs> it was from the uh, 2015 Five College Realtors 10 mile race, the old Jones, the DH yep. Jones race. And so it was photo number 360. 
you know, I've run in a lot of races and I always hate the race photos of myself. After the race, you get all these emails and links and I look and I'm, I'm always look like I'm really struggling. My mouth is open and I look like I'm suffering. You know, if I know, like sometimes if I see the camera and I'm feeling okay, you know, then I'll smile and wave. But more often than not, I miss it or something. And if it catches a natural shot of me, I'm never happy with it. But actually the one that you took wasn't half bad. So Uh, that's so good to hear. (laughs) I would steal it, but it has your watermark on it. Uh, Right. (laughs) But anyway, so is race photography, is that your real day job? More of a side gig that I do. I I cobble together a lot of jobs, including an an editing job and freelance writing and editing work. And then um, the photography is just sort of one aspect of that. I had originally called it Northeast Race Photo. I grew up in a town called Northeast Harbor. Was that Maine? Yep. But no one could ever get the name right. So eventually I just changed it to my name to simplify. It's what a lot of photographers do. And changing the actual website URL would be a practical nightmare. As for your photo, I genuinely try really hard to catch and post shots that make runners look good. You know, as a runner myself, I know what I want to see in a race photo. That half dead looking saggy quad eyes closed shot, that just ain't it. (laughs) I call those the downbeats and I, I don't like them. I wouldn't want to see them. So I try not to post them. It just comes down to volume at that point. I think you just take enough shots and weed out the crummy ones. So how many do you take in a, say a big race? Thousands, right? Honestly, thousands. Yeah, depending on the size of the race. And no one wants to click through that many. So I do spend a lot of time weeding out the bad ones. So it must be very time consuming then to post-process all your photos after the race. It's well more than the amount of time I actually spend shooting. (laughs) In addition to road races, what other events do you photograph? Road races, trail races, triathlons, pretty much just those though. And I guess sometimes I'll get hired to shoot cycling events and things Mm -hmm. like the Wheeling for Healing event up here in Mm -hmm. Greenfield. So doing a race like Seven Sisters race, for example, how do you identify where's a good location to shoot from? Because it seems like your photos are from different points in the race, right? So there must be a lot of planning involved where you get a location near the start and then you have to hustle to a a different point. (laughs) So how does that all that work? I end up sweating a fair bit sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I sometimes I'll scout it out ahead of time. And I think it's always nice to have a setting or a background that somehow represents either the race itself or its location. So I generally find finish line photos to be the least interesting. Though, of course, as a, as a runner myself, I, I do get their special appeal. It's just that a lot of times I'll choose locations based on the lighting. I'll try to avoid that visually busy mix of bright sun and deep shadow, since those can just be a nightmare to expose for, especially when you're in the woods. On a trail on a sunny day, it's really pretty in person, but I just curse the high contrast dapple. <laughs> and I look for uniform light or, or dark whenever it's possible. So how many events do you photograph in a typical year? Maybe a dozen or so now. I, I used to do a lot more, a lot fewer since covid and more and more, I'm only shooting ones where I'm specifically hired by race directors and the photos are free mm-hmm. or ones where the races have become like old friends, like Seven mm-hmm. Sisters in Vermont 100, where it, oh, wow. it's become a tradition. I have a friend. Well, Sarah, Sarah Bousquet, we mentioned her earlier. She's mm-hmm. doing the Vermont 100 this year. I'm so glad to hear that. She is doing so well. It's so awesome to see. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever sell your photos to publications or enter them in photo contests? I've never really had any luck with contests or awards or anything like that, but I have sold some shots and been published in Trail Runner, Ultra Running, New England Runner, magazines like that. 
So if someone's interested in purchasing one of your photos, say I want to buy that photo of me in the, uh, the 10 miler, how would I go about doing that? Right on the site, like right by the photo. It, it's actually super easy. Right next to the photo, there's a green buy button and you can either get a print copy or a digital download. You know, I mean, I know nobody actually wants to pay for, <laughs> for yeah, photos. Right, right. Yeah, you see a lot on Facebook with the watermark still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Not yours necessarily, but... <laughs> that's not really helping the photographer. No, that's right. And <laughs> honestly, my prices are definitely some of the fairest in the market. Yeah, so yeah. I don't feel bad suggesting that people buy them. Right. So because you photograph so many events, you probably can't participate in as many of them as you would like because you're quite an accomplished runner and triathlete yourself. Do you ever have to not participate in an event that you wanted to because you, you were photographing it? All the time. <laughs> Anytime I'm behind the lens, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much a guarantee. Yeah. So your Northeast Adventures blog contains a listing of all your PRs for various activities and distances. And, and so in 1997, you ran a marathon in three hours and 22 minutes. So what event was that? 1997, that would have been the Shamrock Marathon in Virginia Beach. I was living in Northern Virginia at the time. It was, that was such a good run for me. The one time I got to mile 20 and still felt great. <laughs> you know, and each mile after that was a little bit faster. How wow, often does nice. that happen in a marathon, right? Not very often. So how many marathons have you run? About a dozen, I think. Oh, wow. Maybe a little over, maybe 14. I lost track at this point. A few more than me. They started to morph into like ultras and weirdo distances and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, the ultras, I, I think that's your real passion, right? Trail running as opposed to road running, right? And I saw on ultrarunning.com, you completed the 50K Pisgah Mountain Trail Race in a little bit over six hours. So what was that event like? Oh, Pisgah is a, a terrific event. It's, it's one of the old school, early trail ultras, pretty rugged, low frills, feels like a, a shoestring budget kind of affair. And, yeah. and I love it for that. But what's it like running 31 miles through the woods? You know, honestly, I can't imagine not doing that kind of distance in the woods or, or somehow on trails. I love the variety. And in general, I just prefer the sense of exploring and adventure that you get on trails. I say that and I am a road runner too. You know, I, I don't poo-poo that at all. I, I don't really feel like there needs to be a distinction between the two. They're kind of just labels, road <laughs> right. runner, trail runner, right. you know, and a 20 miler on a dirt road is terrific training for a, a long trail race, as long as you include trail runs during the week. Yeah. The road running accomplishments are awesome. Also, you ran a mile and 549 pretty fast. Yeah. That was back in, I think 2014, at least. I think I ran it faster than that back in high school, but oh. I'm old enough now that Let's just say that uh, I'm the same age that the kids in Stranger Things are supposed to be. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. record keeping was not a priority back yeah, then. Hey, Stranger Things, the new season just got released too. <laughs> so do any other trail races stand out? Yeah. Amy Rizeki is really good at designing courses. Her routes at Mount Toby and Mount Tom, she's just started up some new trail races there. Those really hit the sweet spot for me in terms of utilizing the fun, narrow, single track and not just following the easiest option. Yeah, those are terrific local races. So how's your running today? How many miles a week are you generally out there doing? I actually injured myself oh, finishing no. up the field work for the new book. I threw my hip out and, and I've spent yeah. a good chunk of the past year or so trying to recover with PT and strength training. And then fortunately, I really enjoy biking and swimming and hiking. So it doesn't feel like too much of a sacrifice to me. I'm hoping to get back to doing around 30 miles a week or so. That feels like a reasonable 
pace to me, 25, 30 miles. My body can handle that. I'm getting there. So you mentioned biking and swimming, and of course you've completed triathlons, both the half Ironman and an Olympic triathlon. Can you talk about that? Sure. I did triathlons more probably like 10 years or so ago. And I think most of them were in New Hampshire. That's where I was living at the time. Though my Olympic distance PR was at the Mass State Triathlon over near Athol. Yeah. So the half Ironman is quite grueling. A 2K swim, a 90K bicycle ride, and a half marathon run. Yeah. It's definitely at the limit for me, but I'm not sure my body would be happy with a full Ironman, but the half was the sweet spot. Yeah. It's great. So um, other than running and triathlons, do you like to just hike up trails as opposed to running up them? All the time. I know some people might poo-poo that, but I don't hold myself to any arbitrary rules anymore. I just go based on how I feel or what I want. Sometimes I want a good workout and sometimes I just want to spend the afternoon in the woods or being on a mountain. You know, it's all good. Oh yeah. We love hiking. And my favorite hiking trail is Mount Lafayette in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Franconia Ridge. Yes, the Franconia Ridge Trail. That's, for me, the ultimate. The first time I ever went up, I think it was the Falling Waters Trail. And once you get above the tree line and you look across the valley, you're looking at Cannon Mountain. It's just magnificent. And you walk along that ridge, you know, Liberty and, and Lincoln and Lafayette. It's really an awesome hike. And then you come down, you stop at Greenleaf Hut and come down, I, I think it's the, or the old bridal path. Right. I love it up there. I would recommend that loop to anybody, anytime, ever. It is absolutely one of the bucket list loops to do. Yeah, definitely. I think I like that more than going up Mount Washington. I agree. Yeah, partly because you can drive up Washington, but also it's so dramatic. You're essentially on a, it's not a knife edge, but it's a really thin ribbon of trail going along this, this sharp ridge. And it's, it's just so beautiful up there. Yeah. So do you have your own favorite hiking locations? You know, I was lucky enough to grow up in Acadia, and I admit that's pretty much my gold standard. For me, it's really hard to beat bare granite domes with ocean views and mm -hmm. the sound yeah. of a bell buoy in the distance. You go up Cadillac Mountain? Yeah. They say Cadillac Mountain, if you're there, you're the first person on the continent of the U.S. to see the sunrise. I think that's right. But Acadia is in my blood. But, but I agree with you. I think Franconia Ridge and the Whites is also very much a favorite. And really, any lush high elevation spruce or a forest oh, right. they just smell so good <laughs> so do you have a more local favorite sure i enjoy any place with like swoopy single track switchbacks there's a few cool networks real nearby at places like deerfield ridge and out on the montague plains and down at bachelor street and earl's trails in the holyoke range and a little bit further afield i would highly recommend people check out pittsfield state forest the mountain bike trail network there is dense and navigation can be tricky the first time, but I promise if you go up the Honolulu Trail and come down the Turner Trail, you will have a good time. Wow, that's great. Good to know. So in addition to hiking, you're also an avid cross-country skier and I dabbled in that back in the 80s, but it seems like as the winters get milder, it's more difficult to find cross-country skiing around here. You have to travel further north. Do you find that to be true? I do. I, I feel like even just in the past 10 years, I felt like I would have more days cross-country skiing per winter than I do now, for sure. I think it's just a matter of getting a little bit creative at this point. Like, we'll go to Northfield Mountain as often as possible, which is real nearby. Yeah. But in order to find reliable snow, I think you kind of have to go up to Notchview up in Windsor. It's the place that seems to hold the snow the longest. Yeah. Years ago, I remember there was a place, Cummington Farms, that was a popular place around here. 
I saw maps for it. It looked awesome. Yeah, it was. I could bring my kids there because you could rent equipment. It was great. So Ben, it's been a pleasure chatting with you about your work and all your outdoor activities. And so good luck with the sales of your new book, Trail Running, Eastern Massachusetts. And again, if folks want a copy, they can just find it at their local bookseller. So thanks again for um, being my guest on the Let's Run podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Real pleasure. Take care. You too. I recently had a conversation with Ivana Baruch of the Greater Springfield Harriers about a potential podcast featuring the Big Fourth 5K at the Basketball Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, our schedules didn't allow this to get done in a timely manner, so instead, I'll spend a few minutes talking about the race and its history. There are a number of iconic road races in Western Mass that have been around for quite a long time. I believe that the granddaddy of them all is the Walter Childs Marathon, which was recently run for the 58th time and is one of the oldest marathons in the world. Many other races started in the late 70s, such as the St. Patrick's Day Road Race, the Bridge of Flowers Race, and the Talking Turkey Six Mile Race. This is not a comprehensive list. There are many other well-established, iconic road races in Western Mass. And of course, there's the Big Fourth 5K, which will be run for the 45th time on July 4th. The race starts at 9 a.m. You can register online at the Harriers website. Race day registration at the Basketball Hall of Fame starts at 8 a.m. on the 4th. The route is along the Connecticut River Walk and Bikeway. Here's a little bit of history about this race. Last year, 20-year-old Amherst College student Sophia Walmar set the course record for women with a time of 17 minutes, 14 seconds, a sizzling 5 minute 34 second per mile pace. The men's record is held by Kevin Johnson, who finished with a time of 15 minutes, 11 seconds back in 2011, which is under a 5 minute pace. A couple of former podcast guests have won this race. Kent Lemmy from the Berkshire Running Center won this race in 2010 with a time of 15.57. And Don Roberts has won this race twice in 2003 and 2016. I actually ran this race back in 2017 and finished 80th. (laughs) The Basketball Hall of Fame opened at its Columbus Ave location in 1985. Prior to the race taking place at the Hall of Fame, I believe that it took place in downtown Springfield, starting and ending on Main Street near the Civic Center. Attendance at the race has fluctuated over the years. Before the pandemic, the race typically attracted between 200 and 250 runners, although back in 2001, there were 346 finishers. Last year, there were 147 finishers, although it was one of the first races that returned after races were shut down due to the pandemic. On the 4th of July, in addition to the big fourth race at the Basketball Hall of Fame, 4Run3 is sponsoring the second annual Freedom 4 Miler in East Longmeadow right before their annual 4th of July parade. Similarly, in Pittsfield, the Independence Day 5K run takes place immediately prior to the Pittsfield 4th of July parade. You can get a listing of all upcoming races by visiting the Greater Springfield Harriers website. 
And of course, the weeknight race series events continue. On Monday evenings at 6.30 p.m., the Empire One Running Club hosts three-mile cross-country races at Stanley Park and Westfield. On Tuesday evenings at 6.30 p.m., the Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club hosts 5K cross-country races that start on Burt's Pits Road in Northampton. On Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m., the Greater Springfield Harriers host their Summer Sizzler events at Forest Park. The events alternate between an 8K on-road race and a 5K cross-country race. Check the Harriers' website for details. And on Thursday evenings at 6.30 p.m., the Empire One Running Club hosts 5K races at Ashley Reservoir in Holyoke. The 12-week point series begins on June 30th. The Holyoke Elks is open for post-race food, drink, and fun. Thank you for listening to the Let's Run Western Mass Running Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and share with your friends. And as always, happy running! Happy running!